we are in our fifth discussion tonight in Christianity Explored. And last week we looked at the cross. We've been looking through the Gospel of Mark, and we've been looking at the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus really with a fresh perspective, as if we've never seen it before. And the purpose of that is really twofold. One, it is to help us as we relate to our friends and neighbors and co-workers who aren't Christians and they don't know much about Christianity, to help us think like an unbeliever almost, to help us think like someone who's never encountered the gospel before. But also it has been to reach people uh, that don't know Christ or that have questions. And I can just share with you that I know that at different times throughout these last five weeks, we have had people either in person or people that have been watching that I do know have spiritual questions about God, about Christianity. And so just be praying for those who are interested and those who've been involved that maybe haven't made a decision yet to trust Christ, that that would be made clear to them. So let's begin. We will play the, the video tonight as well. But I'd like to just begin, um, obviously, the summary on the front page of your handout. Last week we saw that Jesus died to rescue us from sin by taking the punishment we deserve. But tonight, we look at the resurrection of Jesus, why Jesus rose from the dead. So let's look at chapter number 14 of Mark as we begin the discussion tonight. Mark 14, and what we're going to do this evening is we are going to look at verse 27 down through verse number 31. All right, it says this, and Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. Excuse me, I lost my place. Let me just find it. <clears throat> and Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily, or truly, I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow, before the cock crow twice, Thou shalt deny me thrice. Three times. So in this section, we see Jesus speaking to the disciples. And obviously, if you know the setting, they are just a few hours before Jesus is going to be arrested. They've met in the upper room, and they, Jesus has shown his love to these men that he's traveled with and known for this three and a half years. And he gives them this prediction of what is going on to happen. So notice with me, what were some of the predictions? What were some of the predictions that Jesus said? Maybe you can point them out for me. What, uh, what's the first prediction that Jesus gives? We'll work it back to verse number 27. And what is the, what is the first prediction that Jesus gives? Okay. There's gonna, the, well, the, the shepherd isn't going to be doing any smiting, but so the first one is at the very beginning. He says that they're going to be what? What's going to happen to them? They're going to be offended. Now, does anybody know this word offended here? It's not like 
Like, um, oh, you insulted me. I am so offended. The idea is that is the idea of a stumbling block. In other words, there's something going to prevent their faith. There's something going to come in the way of them following Jesus. That's the first prediction. What's the second prediction in there? It's still in, still in verse number 27. So they're going to be offended. By the way, how many of them are going to be are going to have this? Every single one of them. Then what else is going to happen? Does Jesus say? Yeah, the shepherd is going to be struck. Now, as they look at this, we see they, they start to understand who it, who this is. So the, the shepherd is who? It's Jesus. And so the sheep are going to be scattered. That's the next prediction that Jesus says. That So you're going to be offended, and he says, you are going to be, he, he, he quotes the, the prophecy, he says, you're going to be scattered. You're going to all be separated. Verse number 28 is the next prediction. This is the big one. This is the big prediction that they seemingly just miss right over in it. What is this prediction? He's going to rise. He's going to rise. He said, yeah, he says, after I am risen. But they seem to just like miss that part of the discussion because they go into verse 29 and this is number two. We see Peter disagreeing with Jesus' predictions, right? Peter says, maybe these guys, maybe these people will be offended, but definitely, definitely not me. He also does it in verse number 31. Skip down to verse number 31. After Jesus says, you will deny me, verse 31, he spake them more vehemently. If I should die with you, I won't deny you. There's no way. There's no way. And then everybody else said, that's right. We're with you, Peter. Absolutely. We won't. We won't. None of us. So what do you think is going on in Peter's, in, in Peter's mind at this moment? We, this isn't the first time we've seen him disagree with Jesus, but what's happening here with Peter? What's going on? I wish I had my, like, when I do this in the morning, I usually have a cup of coffee. I'm like, I will just sip a cup of coffee, you guys. Think about it. You know, it's usually got to get the, get it going. Don't yawn at me there, you know, like, that's, they're contagious, you know, I guess you. <laughs> so, Go ahead. Oh, now, now they're all coming. Let's we'll we'll go we'll go Karina first. Yeah. Right. He's, he's, he, we've we've been down this road before. Yeah. What else is going on? What are you gonna say, Jim? I know, I, I, that kind of strikes me too. Like, I, yeah, he hears the death and he thinks when he hears about death and denial, he thinks end of story, right? That's thoroughly in their mind. Like, it's almost like, did you not hear what he just said? I'd be like, maybe I, I probably wouldn't be because none of them did. I'd be like, well, wait a minute, what, what do you mean after I am risen? After I am risen? After, but he hears die and deny. And actually, it's interesting that's the state of mind that they stay in. If you, if you, and we don't have time to study it tonight, but they stay in that state of mind right up through the crucifixion and even when you get to the resurrection. 
because they, they, well, why? Why do you think that that is so, that's so fixed in their thinking? Any thoughts on that? Exactly. Dying is not at all a part of their plan. They don't, this is not how you launch a major world religion. You don't die, and then you don't have your, you don't die, and then have your followers deny you. That's just not the, that's not in the script. The script that, that Peter, James, and John, they're the three ringleaders, the script that they have is, man, on Sunday we just marched into Jerusalem. I mean, this is just like four days ago. Three or four days ago, they come into Jerusalem. Jesus is riding on a, on a donkey. And all of the people are just like, yes, save us now. You're, they want to make him the king right then and there. Like this is, and so in their thinking, it's like, man, this movement is just picking up momentum. There's been healings and miracles, and nobody has ever stopped Jesus. They've tried to kill him. I think they're probably at an all-time high of confidence. I couldn't see it any other way. Like, they're probably at the pinnacle of the most confident they've been since they followed Jesus. And now Jesus says, you're, you're, you're just not, uh, I'm going to die, you're all going to be scattered, and you're all going to deny me. So that is going to stay with them. And it's important when we get to the last part tonight, when we think about the resurrection, because they were not expecting a death, and they certainly weren't expecting a resurrection. There are many people who think, oh, well, these men, they just fabricated the story. Their, their leader died, and so they made up the story about his resurrection. That was never part of their thinking. Even when Jesus tried to explain it to them, it just went over their heads. They didn't, it didn't register. So Jesus, number three, Jesus quotes from the um, Old Testament. He explains he's going to suffer. That, that quote, by the way, Zechariah. Um, so... Now, if you, in number four, we already talked about which prediction did Peter pay attention to? The dying and denying, right? And which did he ignore? The rising, clearly. So on the inside now, Jesus had spoken plainly and repeatedly about his resurrection from death. Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10. Did the disciples understand what this meant? No. If not, why didn't they ask Jesus about it? In fact, I'll just read this for you. Mark 9 and verse 32. This is some time before. It says in verse 31 that Jesus taught his disciples and said that the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men. They shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. Where do you think that's coming from? That fear. Why, why, will they, why are they afraid to ask him? I mean, I think it probably picks up on what we've already talked about. This isn't how they wanted it to go. So when they hear something that, when they hear something that doesn't quite fit in their plan, well, what is kind of human nature? Just ignore the problem and hope that it, yeah, hope it goes away. Well, maybe he'll stop talking about this, you know? 
We're not going to ask them about that. They were afraid to. I mean, I, I'm thinking, why else might they be afraid? Maybe they were afraid for what that would mean for them. They didn't want it to be true. So they clearly just hear the information and they just put it away from them. They don't want to think about it. It's kind of a side point, but I think that's interesting when it comes to all spiritual matters, isn't it? Like most people, you, you, you want to, we want to share the faith and talk about Jesus, and people would rather not think about the uncomfortable parts of life even. We all know that we're going to die. We all know that, that something, our life means something, that we're going to die someday, but people just, they just do not think about it unless they're forced to, unless something happens and, con- and they're confronted. So very uh, interesting. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that is interesting. I know. I wonder why not. Although, I mean, the reality was every single person that Jesus rose from the dead, everybody knew that what would eventually happen to that person. They would die. So all of those resurrections were not permanent, right? I don't know if that's why, but that's just one thought that I have on that. But yeah. Um, Any other thoughts on that before we move on? Okay. So, in Mark 16, verses 6 through 7, after Jesus has risen, there's that wonderful statement that the angel said, He's risen just as he told you. So let's go to our friend Rico. I've been enjoying his. I like. Uh, anybody else watch like UK television? Anybody watch British, like BBC television or something like that? So Rico is kind of like the, the BBC for our Bible study here, helping us out with little British humor every now and then in there. So let's go ahead, James, and uh, we'll play that video, and we'll we'll watch this one tonight. Being reunited with those you love is one of the happiest experiences on earth. The familiar face, the reassuring voice, the comforting embrace. But imagine what it would be like to be reunited with someone you thought you'd lost forever. Not just someone who had changed jobs or moved away, but someone you thought you would never see again, never could see again. When we think of those friends and family we've lost, it's devastating to think that they've gone. However hard we try, no medical or industrial advance can stop death from winning. Bodies, like these buildings, fall into disrepair and eventually fall apart. Only one man in history has demonstrated absolute power and authority over death. He knew beforehand exactly how and when his own death would happen. And even more remarkably, he repeatedly claimed that he would be raised to life on the third day after his death. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, 
chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So much hangs on this, because if Jesus was right in advance about his own resurrection from death, then it means he's trustworthy. He's not a liar and he's not a lunatic. It proves that we can trust him. It also proves that there is genuine hope in the face of death. If Jesus really was raised from death, then we can be too. But if Jesus was wrong about this, then Christianity is founded on a lie. So how can we be sure about Jesus' staggering claim? First of all, we need to know that Jesus really did die. At the end of his account of Jesus' death, Mark focuses on three women who have watched him suffer and die. Not only have they watched him die, but two of them also watch him being buried. Mark tells us, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. There's clearly no doubt in their minds that the only fit place for Jesus at this point is a tomb. Later we read that they bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. These spices were used to embalm the dead. You wouldn't buy spices like that unless you were expecting to find a corpse. But it wasn't only the women who were sure of Jesus' death. As evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. It was unusual for crucifixion to result in death so quickly, so the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, questions the centurion. The centurion confirms that yes, Jesus was already dead. Now the Romans had many talents, but when it came to killing people, they were experts. If a centurion said someone was dead, he really was dead. Satisfied with the centurion's words, Pilate gives Joseph permission to remove the body from the cross. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. As Joseph personally takes down the body from the cross, wraps it in linen, then places it in a tomb that was closed with a huge heavy stone, he sees and feels nothing to suggest that the body was anything other than a corpse. The evidence unanimously points to the fact that Jesus was dead. The disciples believed they would never again see Jesus alive. In other words, Pontius Pilate, the centurion, Joseph of Arimathea and the women were all absolutely certain that Jesus had died. The evidence unanimously points to the fact that Jesus was dead. 
the disciples would never see Jesus again. But Mark's gospel doesn't end there. He records what happens 36 hours after Jesus' death, very early on Sunday morning. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Once the Jewish holy day is over, the women return to the tomb where they'd seen the body being buried just 36 hours earlier. But they're about to get two major shocks. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. The first shock is when they see that the huge heavy stone covering the entrance to the tomb has been rolled away. Then comes the second shock as they go inside the tomb. Jesus is nowhere to be seen. Instead, they see a young man dressed in a white robe. He tells them the reason Jesus is not there. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. The one they thought was lost to them forever. The one they thought they would never see again was waiting for them in Galilee. The place they had first met him, where everything started. Other biblical accounts tell us there were at least 10 separate occasions when Jesus appeared to his disciples after his death. We also read that more than 500 people saw him at the same time. And this was no ghost or hallucination. He had a physical body that could eat and drink, that could be talked to and touched. As the years passed, many of the disciples ended up joyfully dying for their faith, simply because they knew beyond any doubt that Jesus was indeed raised from death. They had seen it with their own eyes, and no threat or torture could make them deny what they knew was true. They had seen firsthand that Jesus had triumphed over death, so death no longer had any fear for them or any power over them. But Mark is under no illusions about the outrageousness of this claim. He doesn't gloss over the struggle to believe what has just happened. In fact, he says this, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Even though Jesus had told them repeatedly in advance that it was all part of the plan, it's still too much for them to fully understand or accept. And it may be that it's a struggle for you too. The temptation may be to forget all the evidence we've seen about who Jesus is and what he said he would do. Like the women, our instinct may be to run away from the resurrection and say nothing to anyone. But just as death was not the end for Jesus, so it won't be the end for us. Remember the word the young man in the tomb, he told the women to tell the disciples, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, there you will see him, just as he told you. You see, it's not only the disciples who will see the risen Jesus, you will see him too. Acts 17 verse 31 tells us, 
For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. In other words, there will be a day of judgment for all of us. The resurrection guarantees that one day we will all be raised physically from the dead and Jesus will be our judge on that day. The only question is, are we ready to meet him? One man who certainly was not ready was Peter, the fisherman from Galilee who had been one of Jesus' closest disciples, the one who guided Mark as he wrote his book. Peter was the disciple who had earlier criticized Jesus for predicting his own death and resurrection, who had fallen asleep when Jesus had told him to keep watch, who had told Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And then, that same night, had denied even knowing Jesus, not once, but three times. We know that Peter felt the terrible weight of his own sin. Mark tells us that as soon as he disowned Jesus for the third time, Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Peter wept because he knew his sin had finally caught up with him and there was nothing he could do to put it right. But remember the words spoken by the man in the empty tomb after Jesus is raised. Go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. It's a beautiful detail. Having died to pay for sin, and having risen from death to prove that sin was truly paid for, Jesus wants Peter to know that he is included. If he would only trust Jesus, then all of his sin, every denial, every failure to love God as he should, would be fully and finally forgiven. The friends would be reunited. One of the first funerals I ever took was for a professional musician called Stuart Spencer, who died of leukemia in his late 30s. I saw him three days before he died, and I'll always remember my last visit to him. I was feeling emotional, and without thinking I just said, Stuart, what's it like to die? And I'll never forget his answer. He looked at me very calmly and said, Rico, Christ has risen. The resurrection may be precious to you, but I'm going to stand before God in a few days' time. Do you have any idea how precious it is to me? You see, Stuart knew he was a sinner, just like Peter, just like you and me. But he also knew for certain that Christ had died and risen for sinners. And because of that, he knew what awaited him beyond death, a real physical resurrection of his body, a body that will eat and drink, be talked to and touched, a body that will never again see sorrow or suffering, disease or decay. He also knew who awaited him, ready to welcome him, the familiar face, the reassuring voice, the comforting embrace. Because of the certainty of the resurrection, Stuart could joyfully and calmly trust Jesus with his own death. Can you? That point that he makes about the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Christ proving that there is power over death. You know, there is no 
There's no other faith system that provides that. There's some hope of some kind of eternal, but the idea that the body can be resurrected, that the body will be resurrected and live eternally is a uniquely Christian concept. Um, Now, with that, I think it was C.S. Lewis, he said, so so let me back up, then I'll get to the C.S. Lewis statement. It's within the heart of just about everyone is a desire to live, right? So like there's, obviously we know that things can happen in people's life where they lose that desire to live, but you watch people fight to the end, fight to the very last breath with this overwhelming desire to live and to, to not die. There's a, um, and when you think about that, we long for, there's all these longings in life, and C.S. Lewis, the quote that always sticks with me, many of you have probably read it before, but what he says is, if our heart longs, if it hungers for something that can't be satisfied, if we, if we have a thirst that can't be quenched on earth, perhaps it's because we were created for something more heavenly than earthly. It's like just the fact that we have these longings, like why is it there? Like the point is we were never created. We we're not created. We we're not intended to die. We we're intended to be eternal. And so the resurrection of Jesus is that assurance. The Old Testament predicts a resurrection, but it wasn't until Jesus came and fulfilled that resurrection that we had that assurance. So he presents a, a very wonderful biblical account of the resurrection. Let me ask you this, though. Let me ask you this question. What, what might someone more skeptical, what objection may someone, could someone give to what we just saw there? Based on that, if you put your mind, yourself in the place of someone who's, someone who's not a believer, I, I love the fact that in the series he just goes through the biblical accounts. We do believe that the Bible just in, inherently has power and, it's, and the Holy Spirit uses it to speak to hearts. But what might be some, maybe a logical or an argumentative objection to what we just saw? Any, any, anybody? Yeah, back then the, the, the case was made that, well, it was, so, so the point is, so, so we could sum up all those arguments and someone could say, yeah, well, every bit of evidence that you used was from the people espousing this religion, right? Isn't that what he did? I mean, he gave the account in the Gospel of Mark. Does Mark have a vested interest in telling us this? Well, sure, he wants us to believe this. So somebody could say to you, well, well, listen, you know, I appreciate what you're saying, but you know, that's just what, what they said, you know, and, and why should I believe that? What would you say to that? So we would not know about anybody unless somebody wrote about it. Right. But no one has ever asked me to believe that George Washington performed a miracle or, you know, rose from the dead. Nobody's ever asked me to believe something like that. Right? So, yeah, I can, I can do that. I understand the point. 
So what, I mean, what, what else is there? I mean, that's a good starting point for sure. What else is there to, if you're, if you're talking with somebody, and because we, this is, a, this is a quite fantastic and incredibly amazing story, if true. It's wonderful. But even in the early days, I think one of the places you can start is this. And maybe you want to write this down because maybe you have friends or people that you've talked to, but one of the things you can say is, hey, I understand where you're coming from. You're not the first person to be skeptical. In fact, most of the early Christians that we read about, they were skeptical too. So, the, the, while yes, the evidence that we have is from the perspective of the followers, right? We should look at how they presented it. Let me give you, and there's a few things you could say here. You could talk about, you could go to the typical statement about the apostles would have died for a lie. How many of you ever heard that, that argument before? It's a very helpful argument to say that, well, in all these apostles, they would have gone to their death knowing that they fabricated this story. So that's one area, that's, and, you, and I would encourage you if, you, if you don't know these things, mark that one down and study that one out. The other one is you have to give a plausible explanation for the beginning of Christianity, right? Without the resurrection of Jesus, you have to have a plausible explanation for how Christianity gets started. We pretty much know how all the other more contemporary religions got started, don't we? I mean, we know the origin stories. Muhammad claimed to receive a vision, and he claimed this vision was given to him. He wrote it down, and, so, and people believed his vision. The Mormon faith, Joseph Smith, claimed to get a vision, write it down. Buddha had these revelations, apparently, that they claim and wrote them down. So we know the origin. It's no, nobody debates. I mean, maybe some very high-level you know, professors debate it, but for most people do not debate the origin of any other religion. It's how it is. So if Jesus did not rise from the dead, you have to give a plausible explanation for how Christianity began. Go ahead. They didn't get rich. They were almost all executed. Right. Right. And 12 different men in very different, and all being questioned in different places. Right. So let me pick up on that thought for a minute, if I could. How did the, if you look at the record, say yes, well, so the record we have is from the believers. Of course it is. But if you take some time to study how they presented the argument, we have some interesting, some interesting points. If you were to look at, we won't go there now, but if you were to look at one example of Paul's preaching about Jesus is in 
1 Corinthians 15, where he talks about the resurrection. And as he explains the resurrection, he says that Jesus appeared to Peter and the other apostles, and then he appeared to those 500 people. And then Paul says something really interesting. We, can just assume, we would just assume that this is how he typically presented the argument, because we know that when, the, when people heard about the resurrection, they mocked him. That was common. He even said that. When I talk about the resurrection, people mock me. So we learn his argumentation. He says, hey, listen, 500 people saw Jesus alive at one time. And by the way, most of them, at the time I write this letter to you, most of them are what? Who knows what he says? Most of them are still alive. Well, why would he say that? Why would he say, what's he doing when he says that? Like in common vernacular, he's saying, if you don't believe me, go ask him. Now, if you were trying to propagate something you knew to be false, would that be how you presented it? How do, what do cult leaders do? What do cult leaders do as they try to establish? I don't know if any of you have been in a cult before, but you know, just based on what you know, what do, what do cult leaders do to try to advance their belief system? They cut you off. They bring you into the bubble. They say, don't leave the bubble. Don't listen to anybody else. You just stay here. You'll never, ever find that in the gospel accounts. You'll find them saying, hey, we were eyewitnesses of this. You see Paul saying you can go ask people. The expectation was that people would be skeptical. It's not this mind control thing. There's this, so you put all that together. There's no, this is important in apologetics. There is no, I cannot scientifically, nobody can prove the resurrection of Jesus. It's not provable, right? I can't prove any historical fact. There's not a single historical fact that can be proven. Why? Because to be proven, it has to be scientifically repeatable. You can't reproduce the past. There's nothing that can be proven. The way we come to our understandings as humans is based on evidence. There's a difference between evidence and and a scientific method. Just like in the court of law, if we prove beyond a reasonable doubt, that's that a legal method of proof is different than a scientific method of proof. And so understanding a historical fact, you look at the body of evidence. And as you look at the body of evidence, you have to come up with either, well, like you said, a motive or a plausible alternative to how Christianity started and why all these people were so convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. That's just looking at it from a, that's just looking at it from a legal and um argumentative standpoint. I'm discounting the whole supernatural standpoint that God spoke to my heart, that the Holy Spirit, I mean, that's a whole, that's the, to me, there's the, there's two legs to this that it stands on. One is there is a, there is a a rational argument to be made. And the other is the spiritual experience that I've had when I've encountered the word of God. So Jim first, then Braden had something. Jim. Right. That's right. Absolutely. What were you going to say, Braden? I was just going to say, like, you know, talked about Jesus could have just gone to the apostles. He didn't need to go to 500 people, but why did he go to 500 people? Right. 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 Exactly. All of it was purposeful. And again, the expectation. So when somebody says, 
again, and so part of this is we are, we are learning as Christians in the 21st century is that we no longer live in the 20th century where people just believe Christian teachings. Like 50 years ago, the majority of people just believe, whether they were personal Christians or not, they just believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That is a minority position now. There are even people that claim to be Christians that don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So we are learning a fresh and a new. I'm, I'm not saying they are Christians, because if you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, that's, you're, you're not, that's the essence of Christianity. You must believe in a resurrected Lord. But people will claim the name Christ and not believe that. So we live in a new day where the, and we as Christians have to understand that we are, we are encountering people just as the apostles did expecting them to be skeptical and bringing them the goodness and not being surprised when people say, oh, why would I believe that? Why well, don't I don't necessarily expect you to believe that, but let's, would you be willing to consider it? And then, and again, there's a two sides. There's a rational argument for his resurrection. And then ultimately, don't, we can't be afraid of the word of God because God's spirit speaks through it. So both of those things um, give us that, give us that confidence. And so again, the ultimate question for any person is the last question in the discussion, and that is, do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? That is the linchpin of Christianity. And once that is settled in a person's heart, then they are ready to believe on Christ for salvation. All right, let's conclude tonight. Let's let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the time that we have had. I just pray that you would Use us, Lord, to influence people with the truth of the word. I pray for people that are still, Lord, that we know or that have come through our church that are still wrestling with the truths and the claims of Christianity. God, I just pray that you would be working in their hearts. Help us to see more people come to faith through this church and through our testimony. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You can also call us at 413 662 2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.